you know, this that there are bigger things than basketball. You know, there are bigger things than money and business. So we, I just hope, I just wish one player that can join me, so we can just stop this whole thing. Um, do you still want Elon Musk to buy the NBA? <laughs> that will be that will be my dream. You know, that will be my dream. You know, I think you know what he's doing is for free speech is amazing, and I think you know he he can bring some justice to NBA, and finally maybe I can get to play by basketball. <laughs> Folks, that was Enos Cantor. I'm Matt Leck. With me, David Griskin. Hello, David. How you doing, brother? Man, Enos definitely needs that if he's going to be playing better basketball. It's tough because on the one hand, the first thing I would say is, look, you can't really buy the NBA. That's not really a thing. It's, a, it's actually a, a collection of businesses uh, in our organization. Uh, they've caused severe antitrust uh, issues of himself if one man owned all of that. Uh, and also... Boston Celtics are in the West or Eastern Conference Finals without him. So mm-hmm. I, imagine how good they'd be if they kept his uh, <laughs> no defense playing ass. Uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. Well, uh, Elon's doing so much for free speech. So, so much. It looks like uh, Twitter's going to be coming after him for that $1 billion. We'll be talking about that a little bit in the post game. Thanks, everybody, and welcome to Left Reckoning. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your evening with us tonight. I think we got a pretty good show um, coming up. And a little bit, we're going to be joined by Dr. Asal Rod, um, who is research director at the National Iranian American Council, talking about Joe Biden and how he has continued many of Trump's policies, frankly, um, you know, war on everyday Iranian people, um, something that is truly unacceptable. Uh, Asal really breaks down this dynamic really well, and I can't wait to share um, that conversation with y'all. A little bit later, we'll be uh, breaking down some of these progressive victories in Pennsylvania and Kentucky, uh, which was some uh, much needed good news um, in a sea of very, very, very bad shit that's going on. In the post game, Matt's got some Joe Rogan analysis for us. We're going to be talking a little bit about Elon Musk um, and be taking uh, your phone calls and questions. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about Joe Rogan, who it's the there was this brief, the realignment. Oh, look at what's right and what's left. What's elite? What's capitalist? Uh, it, well, uh, what, what's happening is the re or the de realignment. And uh, <laughs> Joe is back. The alignment. About, yeah, the alignment. <laughs> uh, uh, back to talking about how, you know, people need to get their asses back to work. But, you know, the thing Kim Kardashian and John Taffer and uh, all these sorts of figures, Jim Cramer. Uh, J- Jim Cramer is that the guy, the CM, the business guy? Yeah, Jim Cramer. Yeah, Jim the Kramer, former yeah. Spartacist, by the way. What's a Spartacist? Spartacist was like a radical communist group that apparently he was uh, a member of uh, when he was in college. <laughs> Him and uh, David Brooks, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, left the left. <laughs> um, well, hell yeah, y'all! Um, I really appreciate uh, everybody joining us and. Um, just letting you know, next week, I'm going to be away, uh, but we'll be recording a very, very special episode uh, with none other than Matthew T. Huber. Um, let me just pull this up for you all right quick, because I do have to highly suggest his new book that just came out, Climate Changes Class War, uh, where he breaks down a kind of new strategy for the left on how we can fight um, and build a working class politics um, that includes a Green New Deal and climate policy and sort of drops off all of the kind of scarcity mindset nonsense that we've gotten from so much 
of the the climate left so far. So really excited to share that with y'all next week. Um, but before we get to all of that, uh, we do have a segment coming up, and I think Matt should uh, introduce it to us. There's my mute. Yeah, so uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser is uh, was at a press conference earlier this week, setting off something that made my ears uh, pick up called Infrastructure Week. Because, you know, as the federal government uh, is not doing anything that it promised with regards to Build Back Better, uh, you know, maybe you look to local municipal governments for to maybe pick up some of that slack. And uh, so we have Muriel Bowser uh, giving the speech here. And uh, residents and partners who are all focused on how how we can make better connections for D.C. residents. Uh, We are kicking off the Real Infrastructure Week in Washington, D.C. A few weeks ago, we were at Union Station uh, to announce D.C.'s uh, Build Back Better Infrastructure Task Force, which is leading our efforts to think big about how we will... Now, that's not playing very well, so we're going to uh, just move on from that for a second. But <laughs> Mario Bowser, so announcing this, and one of the big features was Wi-Fi, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I agree that we should be extending municipal Wi-Fi to folks so we don't have to rely on Verizon or whatever piece of crap uh, ISP you have uh, to live with in your community. But I wanted to uh, point out this tweet from a D.C. journalist, uh, Jenny Gathright. Uh, A letter was given to journalists uh, after this presentation. I want to read it uh, here. Uh, We, the uh, dear Mayor Bowser, we, the residents at Potomac Gardens family are in a living crisis, forced to live in unsafe units with multiple housing code violations. Wi-Fi is a great concept, but we face more tragic circumstances. We are a 352 unit development with the majority of children living in despicable, unsanitary conditions, which are falling into deeper disrepair. We have been conditioned to accept less through the years, which is why a lot of us do not speak up. Mold, flooded, leaky units, huge holes, flying cockroaches, rats, mice are also allowed to exist uh, on the lease. Complaints are ongoing. We implore you, Mayor, to please arrange uh, a meeting with our resident council executive board meeting with... uh, uh, to, uh, to see if some of these can be remedied and are, uh, and uh, sorry, I'm losing. Let me see. Uh, to see if some of these can be remedied and our pleas of help can be heard. We live in fear of retaliation from DCHA slash management. Also, in this very room, the rec center, black mold most deadly exists. Everyone here in, mm-hmm. is inhaling mold spores. Thank you, mothers, fathers, children, infants, aunts, uncles, and extended family and caregivers. Uh, uh, are they are under? What well, crossed out is under attack, and then they just write at risk. So you can see the kind of mm-hmm. uh, urgency they're feeling with there. And you know, just to speak to one of those issues cited there, this is from a couple of years ago, but uh, WUSA nine uh, article titled "They Deserve to Have Healthy Home." Uh, a healthy home, poor housing conditions, making kids sick in D.C. 
this is from a, a few paragraphs in the middle of that. Doctors say they quickly developed evidence that unhealthy homes correlated with some of the children's persistent illnesses. Doctors with the clinic said DC has a disproportionately large number of kids suffering from asthma. Dr. Shilpa Patel, who serves as an attending physician of emergency medicine at Children's National, said there are about 17,000 children with diagnosed asthma living in DC. Children's National reported that 5,584 pediatric patients went to the emergency department at the Children's National for asthma symptoms in 2019. A spokesperson for the hospital said nearly 3,700 of the visits represented kids from D.C. The spokesperson also said that children from Ward 7 and 8 had 20 times the emergency department visit rate for asthma compared to children living in northwest D.C. The clinic's uh, latest study, which covers data collected from 2014 to 2017, reports that nearly 25% of pediatric asthma patients are living in unhealthy homes, meaning housing with mold, rodent, or pest infestations, poor ventilation, moisture, and dust. So it's really infuriating like to see something as good as public Wi-Fi expansion. We have to recognize the massive underinvestment that these communities have faced and are facing, and we cannot use like these flashy things that, say, a tech CEO might uh, like to mm-hmm. also say, we partnered with you there, too, for a public relations hit uh, to be covering up the actual rot in the system. Totally. And, like, you know, I, I lived in D.C. for a time, and I, I lived under um, – uh, Muriel Bowser when she was first elected. And, you know, frankly, she sort of represents an archetype of the kind of best that you're going to get from neoliberalism, right? It's this kind of stuff where it's like, oh, we're going to provide some Wi-Fi for folks. Um, you know, well, what we should be doing is, again, providing Wi-Fi across the board uh, for, for cities. Um, and two, does that while sort of managing over public housing programs that are completely failing the people. And we titled this segment uh, Disinvestment as Class War because I think that's a really important framing um, for people to, to to think about this is that it's not just that, oh, the Democratic Party has lost their way, but that this kind of stuff um, plays a major role in the kind of reproduction of this system. So this how this um, the, the Potomac Gardens, uh, where this whole scene uh, played out, has been a, a housing development that has been in crisis for generations. You all can go back and read uh, Bezos's paper, The Washington Post, and find uh, article after article um, throughout the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s about the disrepair here. So this is not something that just happened overnight. This happened after years and years of disinvestment in public housing. And why is that? Because unlike other systems, what sort of uphold things like housing as a human right that says that we need to provide a very basic baseline. And look, as socialists, we want to go far beyond that. Um, but, you know, just kind of basic social democratic systems say we're going to have a kind of baseline for people. And we're also not going to do it in a punitive way. Look at Vienna. Um, which has a, a very, very robust public housing sector that took, again, 100 years to build up, but is something that people take pride of in the city that provides a livable uh, housing for folks um, and is something that is enjoyed by the population at large versus what we have in the United States, where the people who are the most desperate and the most needy get sort of pushed into these public housing um, systems where they are surveilled, where they are underfunded, and they're over-policed, Right. And why is that? Because they were worried, particularly the Republicans and many Democrats went along with it um, in the 70s and 80s with this idea that people are just going to sit down and not work and that we need to basically, as John Taffer says, um, you know, make the dogs hungry. 
Um, and that is the whole mentality behind the war on public housing and the war on these kind of uh, programs is to sort of make poverty in America so abjectly frightening for folks that they will accept abuse from their bosses, that they will accept you know wages that are far less than what they're producing uh, per hour because they know that if they sort of get thrown off into these systems, life is hell. And it's not natural. It doesn't have to be this way. This is a policy choice. And this thing, uh, th- these uh, these systems have been underfunded, as I was saying earlier, for decades upon decades. You know, LBJ is somebody who is unforgivable for his role in the genocidal war in Vietnam, right? No ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, but represented a very different current in liberalism. And here's a quote from him um, when he spoke to Congress on what poverty means for people. What does this poverty mean to those who endure it? It means a daily struggle to secure the necessities for even a meager existence. It means that the abundance, the comforts, the opportunities they see all around them are beyond their grasp. Worst of all, it means hopelessness for the young. And in D.C., that experience is visceral. D.C. is a city that has had a huge amount of big tech money coming in. Obviously, it's the seat of power for the government. And if you've not lived there, really, you might not understand the kind of internal dynamics there, where there is a very vibrant and his, uh, a working class with a lot of history and roots to that community that has been under assault um, from neoliberalism, from racism, um, and from disin- mass disenfranchisement. And it's been going on for a long time, and it's only getting worse as more and more of these communities that people have grown up in, they're getting pushed further and further out, where a lot of people who grew up in the District of Columbia are now being sort of forced off into Maryland, Virginia, where they have to take three, four-hour bus and train rides into work every, every day to feed and take care of this kind of new class of, of folks, Right. This is a policy choice uh, by the D.C. government. It's a policy choice by the federal government. Um, and it is very clearly a class war. The Faircloth Amendment. Yeah, I just want to add this because this is a really important point to make here. The Faircloth Amendment, which is not that old, right? This is put in the late 90s, um, was put on the original Housing Act of 1937 prohibits any net increase in public housing units in this country, right? As we're dealing with a housing uh, crisis, right? There's just, there's not enough homes for folks. Homes are unaffordable. There's actual law on the books that prevents the federal government from being able to net add um, more public housing to the system. Uh, Ilhan Omar has been a very fervent, uh, you know, and and passionate critic of this system, but it hasn't gone as far as it needs to. Um, We need to fight for public housing for all, and we need to fight against this kind of feel-good neoliberalism. Like, I'm sure, like, People should not get this segment wrong. Matt and I aren't against a, a Wi-Fi um, you know, expansion of folks. But what we are against is this kind of veneer. It's the same kind of bullshit as before Trump came into power when Obama and Biden were sort of pushing um, their, their programs for coal country. And they're saying, we're going to give people the opportunity to go to trade school, to learn how to code, right? It's this kind of false mindset that the reason that people are living in these kind of circumstances is because they don't have these necessary skills. And uh, undoubtedly, overcoming the internet divide is a very important thing, um, but yep. it's a very kind of neoliberal pull yourself up by your own boot, bootstraps, fuck your community, worry about yourself and your family, anti-solidarity mindset that pervades uh, this kind of liberalism. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of things. So one thing is like what the model should look like with public housing is, and I maybe is the Vienna model like this? 
where it's like you go in for a lottery for this public housing and you want to get it. I mean, we can, we have that occasionally in New York uh, too, or uh, with uh, rent controlled housing and stuff like that, like lotteries. Uh, but that, that should be, that should be something that people regularly do when they're looking for a new place to stay. That, that you you find some place that has all the space you need that is sanitary mm-hmm. and that isn't taking uh, half your income to give to your landlord. It's not universal in New York, but like a lot of times those are those kind of public private developments and they purposefully make the people on the subsidy and the subsidized housing feel like they're not proper residents of the, of the building, right? They don't have access to the amenities. Their rooms are smaller, all that kind of stuff. The Vienna system is very different. The, the vast majority of people, I, I believe it's something like 60% in Vienna live in public housing and you pay in relation to your income, Right. And there is no income segregation when the, in these kind of housings. People live in the same buildings and they're paying different amounts of money based on the amount of money that they pull in on a monthly basis, right? So it's a vastly different kind of system uh, than what we've sort of developed in the U.S. first with the public housing itself, which was always segregated. And then these kind of mixed use buildings, but they always are very punitive uh, to the poor because the American system has always treated the poor as if they have a personal moral failing. And you look at D.C., like D.C. DC is just such, I mean, my, my heart goes out to the people who are from there and, and, and are living there and are fighting against the system. But D.C. has been like a trial balloon of a lot of these kind of neoliberal market-based solutions. Everything from the failing public housing system there to like the charter school system there, right? The school choice was supposed to help, you know, everyday people in D.C. achieve a higher education. Now, we all know what that is. It's a way to defund school, public schools. Um, for for everybody else and to allow rich people to basically opt out out of public education. Um, but in D.C., you know, the the trends are, go one way where the people who are living in those kind of segregated housing developments tend to go to schools in those areas which are underfunded. Right. But the rich kid living in northwest D.C. gets to pick like the nice, cute school to go to and maybe they'll see a senator's son um, or something like that. Right. It is an extremely unequal system because by design, it's set up to exclude um, and also to punish people. And uh, again, like these are just very, very overt aspects of class war. And while all of this is going on, though, Bowser's been in power for a long time. Right. Um, when all of this has been going on. What have you really seen from Bowser? Well, you've seen this. I don't know if you have this video handy, Matt, of Bowser. Oh, yeah. um, this is, these are the kind of things that Bowser has been interested in sort of promoting. Uh, rather than vibrant public housing, it's shit like this. It's like YKS, like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the Bezos they want to be on the East Coast, right? Well, it makes sense. They have the West Coast Washington and the East Coast Washington. Oh, Jeff wants a house here already trying to attract 50,000 more employees. They're looking for a great place to live and to work. And they want to be able to walk around the city and have great restaurants and arts. Well, that's why a thousand people move here every month. People know they're coming to DC because they can start and grow their businesses. And they have access to some of the most talented people in the top universities in the world. You know, I gotta say, um, oh, I think I got an alarm going. Um, we, we've, you know, done, a, I, I don't want to overstate it, but we've done a fair share of criticizing AOC Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like uh, being against Amazon, yeah, and like that expansion thing, like this is how this is like the the status quo. <laughs> Just to get it straight, like these fake like sort of um, uh, brain trust sessions, like oh, they could move to Washington D.C. We're so great. 
embarrassing. Or, or, man. And it's like, you know, and like Bezos's role in DC has been a net negative, right? From controlling the Washington Post um, to even the house that he's he lives in. I don't know. There might be later in the video, but she notes that Bezos bought a big house in DC and he bought a mansion like in the city. And do you think for one second he bought that house because he enjoys walking down 14th Street? No, he bought that house because he wanted to have a place where he could, um, you know, promote his kind of influence with lawmakers um, in one of the most powerful cities in the country. Um, That's the kind of shit that Bowser's been bringing into D.C., which, again, like people have a very warped view of D.C. I don't want to make this into a whole just like a D.C. segment, but like people do have a very warped sense of D.C. because like, yes, you do have very powerful people there. You have powerful institutions there. But that's a city like any other city that has a backbone of working class people who just get stomped on left and right. Um, and the people who control DC particularly now have very, very little interest in fighting for those folks other than this kind of press release politics, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, they might have mold, but you know, they can get, you know, 20 MBPS downloads on their computer now without having to pay $50 a month. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is absurd that it's, that's like, you know, again, public Wi-Fi for all, um, but it's like those are the kind of like marginal steps that people like that are making as the housing crisis completely um, envelops the city, as the wage crisis threatens the city. I mean, like think about somebody like Jose Andres, who everybody loves to praise now because he loves to do charity cookoffs for you know cooking for people when uh, the hurricane hits. He's somebody who's beloved by the city, and when the city voted uh, to try to increase the minimum wage for tip workers, Jose Andres. Um, made a big stink and got people in the city to basically overrule the democratic mandate to put in a minimum wage word there. Like that's the kind of neoliberal rot that sort of runs that city completely um, without any kind of real input from the everyday voters there. And this kind of class war has like big, big effects on all of us. And let's zoom out for a second because I want to talk a little bit um, about the COVID funding stall um, as another example of this uh, kind of class war of, of disinvestment. So we're seeing all of this kind of kicking and screaming from the Republicans and, you know, Senate Democrats crying about um, the parliamentarian and all this kind of stuff because they can't get the, the this next round of COVID funding through. Let's talk about what that means for working class Americans in this country. The, the government is now considering doing vaccine rationing, right? Um, so only limited people will be able to have access to the vaccines. Uninsured patients uh, who I'll, I'll just be honest, at the beginning of this pandemic, I was uninsured um, and being able to go and get myself checked out, get tests or whatever um, was was very, very helpful for me. And I'll be honest, even though I study and, and follow politics for a living, I was always afraid I was going to get a bill um, because you know how dysfunctional the system is. Um, well, now it is completely dysfunctional where you're seeing many, many of the private uh, providers uh, for COVID tests, for COVID treatment, are saying they're not going to accept uninsured patients. Um, so that means people who are sick with the COVID-19 virus have this kind of devil's choice, right? Do I hope to wait it out at home or do I try to get help and risk being in financial ruin for the rest of my life? Do I get tested and be sure that I don't have COVID-19 and don't spread it to my coworkers? Or do I risk going in, hope that it's just a cold um, and risk infecting everybody else? Because my boss will only accept an official uh, COVID-19 test uh, to exempt me from work, right? Those are the real effects of this kind of shit. And another one um, is rural hospitals in this country. So Texas led the country 
because of Republican disinvestment in this system and because of the kind of bizarre logic of the private healthcare system that just doesn't make it feasible to have small health hospitals in places that are convenient for people to go to because, you know, one, a lot of those people are poor or a lot of those people are on Medicaid, Medicare, uh, which is not going to pay out as much as private insurance. Um, a lot of those hospitals struggle to stay open because of the system. And, you, you know, the Republicans love to talk about how much they love rural people and rural ranchers here in Texas. They don't give a shit about them because when it's actually fighting for their actual right to life and their right to health care, they're completely silent. Um, so as Texas has been undergoing this massive closure of rural hospitals for the past decade, 2010, 2020, you saw it stop. In 2020. And why was that? The COVID-19 pandemic meant that federal funds were going to these rural hospitals. And you didn't you, I believe there were no closers, um, at least the last time I, I, I checked of, of rural hospitals in Texas in those in that two year span. Remember, they led the country in this before that federal funding. Um, and then during this federal funding, people were able to get health care. Hospitals were able to stay open. Right. These questions are life or death. And I know we don't have to educate our audience on the austerity of neoliberalism and what that meant. But I do think this kind of framing is an understanding that it's not just, oh, these guys are fucking up because they have a constituency that they can win is understanding that the despair, the poverty and the worry that working people experience is not just the the consequence of politicians not caring. It's baked into the cake because you want to have people who are not willing to stand up and fight for themselves because they recognize that the consequences of losing are too high. And they're very worried. This is why we're talking about this later with Rogan, you know, UBI stuff, basic income, right? Um, that's why there is this fear of, of the ruling class and politicians and certainly people like Elon Musk against this kind of, these kind of direct payments that people experience because that led to folks saying, you know what? Fuck this. I have enough money to float me for two weeks. I can find a job. I'm not going to work for this asshole who's been sexually harassing me or I'm not going to work for this company, which I know is underpaying me, right? You saw this kind of worker militancy come in, in, in this period because for a very short and brief moment, it was not enough and it was not expansive enough and it was filled with problems, um, but it did have knockdown effects that some people have the ability to say no. And this system does not want a working class that can say no or to fight for themselves. And this disinvestment in public good, it's not just bad politics. It is the front assault of the class war that is waged against working people in this country. And we need to understand it as such. Yeah, I mean, remember our Applebee's memo, the guy yeah. got fired for saying, yeah, this inflation is actually going to make people more desperate because they're not they're going to have a tough time paying for the things that they should frankly not have to rely on market and capitalists for like housing and transportation and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's going to be a continued theme. Totally. Um well, um, I think we're going to jump over to this, uh, our interview with Dr. Saul Rod. Again, I can't wait to share this with you all. Um, we'll come back and we're going to do a breakdown of some of these uh, results from the elections in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, elsewhere. Um, but then after that, patreon.com slash left reckoning. Join us for the post game. Ask us uh, a question in the Discord or leave us a message at 19402897234. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, we get to hear from you all. We'll be talking about Rogan. We're going to be talking a little bit Elon Musk and some other fun stuff there, too. So uh, see you all then and see you on the other side of this interview.
Well, welcome back, everybody, uh, to this episode of Left Reckoning. We're really, really lucky and excited to be joined today uh, by Dr. Asal Rad, uh, who is the research director at the National Iranian American Council. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Happy to be here. Well, we got a lot to get to, so let's not uh, dilly-dally too much. Um, we really wanted to start by you know, setting the scene, sort of talking about the Biden administration and the Iran nuclear deal. Um, but before we get there, could you just sort of briefly explain what Donald Trump's posture toward Iran was during his presidency? So Trump really comes in with this uh, anti-Iran deal attitude specifically. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, this is coupled with the fact that he has all of these Islamophobic comments, um, the Muslim ban itself. So he has this hostile rhetoric, obviously, towards most of the Muslim world. And then specifically on the Iran deal, um, he was a strong critic of it. Now, what ends up happening under the Trump administration is originally the Secretary of State is Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson has a bit, bit mm. more of a pragmatic approach than uh, his successor, which is Mike Pompeo. Um, and Pompeo has really like an obsession with Iran, um, not only obsessed with Iran, but but a very, very, uh, you know, he's, there's, Everybody knows his stance on Israel, which is ironclad support, mm -hmm. sort of an extreme stance on that. And, and to juxtapose that, he has a very anti-Iran attitude. The other advisor that Trump brings on is John Bolton, or was John Bolton. And Bolton also has uh, a sort of history of let's bomb Iran. I mean, he's literally written op-eds, I think, titled It's Time to Bomb Iran. So, mm -hmm. so while Trump himself may have stated that, you know, the... All he wanted to do was create a deal that prevented Iran from acquiring a nuclear, a nuclear weapon, which ironically is exactly what the Iran nuclear deal did. Um, you know, he stated he doesn't want a war, he, that he didn't want uh, regime change, that none of these things were his goal. And I think that's, it's possible to sort of take him for his word that really he just wanted to be able to slap his name onto a deal and say mm -hmm. this is better than what Obama did, which is what we saw as a pattern in the Trump administration in general. But the people he surrounded himself with uh, to make those decisions had a very different agenda. And that was also very clear. Right. So, again, we know that uh, that Pompeo and Bolton had a different idea of what to do with Iran um, than than Trump did. I mean, you have videos of John Bolton speaking in front of the MEK, um, mm -hmm. what was a formally designated terrorist organization in the United States, is still a terrorist organization designated in Iran. Um. So I think it was in like 2019 or 18, he's speaking in front of the MEK and saying, we'll have this conference next year in Tehran. So, so I mean, the, the people around him clearly wanted um, to escalate a conflict and not to get a better deal. So his posture, Trump's posture was, was very strongly centered, or at least the administration's posture was very strongly centered on uh, getting rid of the deal and and painting this picture of Iran as sort of this global menace um, that had to be dealt with, all while also, you know, there were mixed signals. On one hand, it was we want to get a better deal. On the other hand, it was no, this this basically this government has to go. So that didn't really create an atmosphere where it was possible to to engage in negotiations. And then after the assassination of Iran's uh, general Qasem Soleimani. I mean, the Iranian government took the posture of we will not negotiate with basically the, the, the murderers of, of one of our top generals. So that that made diplomacy very difficult, especially when his top diplomat really never wanted to engage in diplomacy with Iran. 
And I mean, um, but before we get to Biden too, I, I do just want to set the stage a little bit for folks because not only is it just ridiculous that Trump pulls out of, of the nuclear deal, um, to, and just reminding folks again, there was nothing going on there that was like Iran had sort of breached the, the protocols or, or the agreement there. The, the U.S. just unilaterally pulled out of it. Um, but following that, like if that's not bad enough, you know, you then basically have these sanctions and then, um, which were really devastating to uh, the people of Iran, especially uh, during COVID. I know it was really hard, for example, for people to get, uh, you know, basic medicine. And you always get these kind of apologists who are saying like, well, actually in the, you know, according to the rules here, they, they, there are no restrictions on medicine. But when you create a regime, a, situ- a situation like that, it basically makes it difficult for any company to want to do business with Iran because they're worried that, oh, if we, you know, step over the line here or we're investigated here, we might be facing punishment and sanctions from the U.S. as well. I mean, could you give people a sense of just, you know, how difficult uh, life was for everyday Iranians during this period of the Trump administration with these kind of um, enhanced sanctions? Yeah, I mean, it was called a maximum pressure campaign or policy, right? And and just to note, they still live under those sanctions. And mm-hmm. I know we'll get into uh, the Biden administration, but this is not a past tense situation. They're mm-hmm. still living under the, the same economic pressure, um, which is, you know, now exacerbated, just like it is everywhere in the world, by... Uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, right? So now Mm -hmm. these, you take a pandemic, you take another war, all of these uh, factors compound the impact of sanctions on on the Iranian populace. And so maximum pressure was exactly what it was. It was meant to um, really put pressure. And this is, you know, if you look at things said by the administration, Pompeo even said, you know, the, the Iranian people will sort of eventually... Uh, they'll know what to do. It was that kind of an attitude. It's like, clear you're putting pressure on the people. And so this whole humanitarian um, goods are exempt argument is one of the most frustrating things to listen to. Because yes, on paper, they are. We all agree. That's what's written down. But what is happening on the ground is completely different. And if you don't believe me, you can listen to our current president, who wrote in April of 2020, a statement um, calling uh, calling on the Trump administration at the time, to ease sanctions in light of COVID on Iran, specifically to address the fact that despite the fact that there are humanitarian exemptions, essential goods are being impeded into getting into the country. So this is something that our current president stated outright. Um, and other officials have have clearly spoken to when they oppose certain sanctions or the sort of like blanket, na- I mean, you have Iran's entire financial sector is sanctioned. Mm-hmm. We have... Um, not only do Iranians, are Iranians in Iran obviously uh, completely impacted, but overcompliance of sanctions is, is so much that Iranian Americans are impacted. Mm. Iranian Americans get their bank, big accounts closed. Uh, if you use words like Iran or Persian in a Venmo transaction, they'll freeze your accounts on the spot. So imagine no one is willing to do any kind of transaction that involves Iran, um, even if it's humanitarian, because it's not, I mean, a bit, bank is a business. They're not willing to risk their business to run afoul of U.S. sanctions. Um, And so that's really uh, what the Trump administration did, coupled with leaving the deal. Mind you, they're the only party. The United States continues to be, because we still haven't returned to it, the only party that actually quit and left the deal. Uh, You mentioned the fact that Iran was in compliance with the deal when the U.S. decided to unilaterally quit. Not only is this true, Iran stayed in full compliance for a year after Mm -hmm. The U.S. quit. It was only uh, until they realized there was absolutely no way 
that other parties to the deal, that the Europeans could actually hold up the promises of economic relief, that they started to take calculated measures to reduce their compliance with the deal. And well, what is one of the reasons why the Europeans couldn't? Secondary U.S. sanctions. Hmm. So it wasn't just that the Trump administration went after uh, Iran itself. They went after anyone who would even attempt to do business with Iran. I mean, that level of sanctions uh, really impacts the economy. Uh, you had, to your point, there were shortages of specialized medicines, right? I mean, Iran um, has been sanctioned for decades. And so um, they have learned to be self-sufficient in certain ways. They, they uh, produce a lot, like something like 97% of their own medicines. Wow. But there are specialized medicines and specialized medical supplies that they import. And that's what made it difficult. So you have chemo pa- patients suffering without getting their medicine. Uh, there was a shortage of insulin at one point. Um, mm-hmm. You have shortages of, of medicines um, for specialized diseases. And these are you know, life-saving remedies that they can't get their hands on because of sanctions. So, you know, the impact, it's hard to overstate it. You have millions of middle-class Iranians, something like 10 to 15% of the middle class um, was pushed into poverty. Hmm. That's millions of people in the middle class pushed into poverty. And this is all under this particular set of sanctions. Um, So while, and I will make this point, while mismanagement and corruption of Iran's government is certainly a factor and a central factor, and certainly the factor that Iranians themselves will cite the most uh, in terms of their current situation. This government has existed for over 40 years, but this set of sanctions is what's created hyperinflation in the country where all of a sudden their money is devalued, um, you know, to a point where basic goods are hard to purchase even when they are available. So, I mean, the impact is just across the board, uh, except for the very wealthy. And it's the same thing we see in every country, right? Every time there's an economic impact on ordinary people, the wealthy don't don't suffer. The officials don't suffer. Governments don't suffer. It's ordinary people across the spectrum that are suffering. And, and that's happening a lot. And it continues to. No, totally. And like, I know it's like a, a small example, but just the, the Venmo thing, like I've been, I've experienced that before where you're just trying to pay somebody back for a kebab or whatever. Yeah. And like, you know, you get, you get it flagged and like, you know, it's, it's funny and, and you know, a little trivial, but like, it just shows how far these companies go and bend over backwards to try to stay in compliance that, you know, you could be in, in Los Angeles and just trying to pay somebody back for dinner. Um, and you're going to get flagged by, by these systems. Um, um, I actually want to give you an example just to show how ridiculous yeah, yeah. compliance is. Uh, Etsy took down a, a shop uh, of an Iranian American woman um, who was making something called Persian dolls, and Etsy took down the shop because the word Persian was in the in the in what she was selling. They were dolls being sold by an Iranian American. So I mean, this is imagine if you know. I mean, these things aren't um, severely impacting this community, but obviously it causes. I mean, for some people, especially the people who get their bank accounts closed, it mm-hmm. does cause a, a economic and financial hardship. But, I mean, you have to just imagine if it's manifesting in these ways in this country, what's actually happening to the targeted country. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's, let's uh, you know, catch up to, to Biden here because, you know, one of the things that like, you know, when people are sort of making their kind of um, pragmatic arguments for why people should support Biden in, in, in 2020 versus sitting out the, the election or something like that, one of the main ones you saw from, from progressives was uh, the Iran deal. And like, we can't continue Trump's policies here. 
Um, but I mean, how would you sort of categorize the early Biden administration's, um, you know, <laughs> uh, role here? Um, and, and specifically when it comes to the Iran, Iran deal and sort of undoing what Trump uh, put in place uh, when he was president? Absolutely. I mean, you talk about progressive groups and progressives in America. I, I count myself in the organization I worked mm-hmm. for amongst them. And yes, you know, we, we felt that for many, many reasons, by the way, this is, you know, this was not a one issue mm-hmm. by any means. Um, but sometimes the, the deal is not understood for its magnitude, right? The, the deal isn't just about nuclear non-proliferation, which is the central point of it, right? The central point um, and now I think with the ongoing war and and the fear of a nuclear war with Russia, we're understanding, again, why it's so important that we have, that we avoid an arms race in, say, the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. And instead, we, we ensure that uh, more nuclear weapons aren't being created in the world. Not only did it do that, but it also averted another war by the United States. I mean, right now, uh, today, the Times of Israel released a report saying that the Biden administration... Um, or the U.S. is going to participate in a uh, in a simulation, in like a military simulation of Israeli strikes on Iran. It's like that's not it's not really the best approach to diplomacy, is it? To to start <laughs> simulating how you attack the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but why? Why is that even happening? Because they are telling you themselves what's the alternative. If we're not going to get back into the deal. And you have all of these presidents and officials who have promised, you know, in, in their very uh, aggressive language, we won't have a nuclear Iran. Um, what is the alternative? Well, the alternative that they themselves clearly have uh, considered and are considering is war. So you have an administration that comes in saying they're going to end endless war. And yet, we're, by not going back to the deal, we're putting ourselves on a path to potentially not only another war in the Middle East, but one where, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq would pale in comparison. Yeah. They're not comparable situations. Uh, Iran right now is not a comparable country to Iraq of 2003 or Afghanistan of 2001. So it's actually a really big deal, but we don't, we're not talking about it as much as we should be. So what did the Biden administration do? We thought, well, they're going to restore the deal. That's what they said they're going to do. Uh, Biden, uh, Blinken, other officials within the Biden administration lambasted the Trump administration and Trump officials for every decision they made on Iran, every single decision. Uh, in 2017, before the, Trump had even withdrawn from the deal, you already had uh, Joe Biden tweeting about what a mistake it would be to withdraw from mm-hmm. the deal. Uh, again, Joe Biden himself, uh, this was never meant to be a catch-all. This deal was working after the assassination of Soleimani, again, Biden has a press conference lambasting the Trump administration, calling him irresponsible, saying that he has no congressional authority to instigate a war with Iran. These are all things that are coming out of Joe Biden as a candidate. And so the assumption was, okay, you know, it's easy to reverse. It was a decision made by executive order. It can be reversed by executive order. The U.S. can go back to the deal. Uh, early on, the Biden administration doesn't really address um, the the Iran deal, uh, while on day one of his administration, he rescinded the Muslim ban, you know, returned the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accord. He took those types of actions. He didn't do the same thing with the Iran deal. And in reality, all the sanctions, the maximum pressure sanctions that we're talking about remain in place. Mm-hmm. Um, while this administration has sort of 
claimed to want to engage in diplomacy and is to a certain extent obviously engaging in these negotiations. At the same time, they talk about, you know, good faith uh, efforts on the Iranian side. And yet, you know, again, the, the news that you see today, I mean, is is practicing mm-hmm. drills to uh, carry out airstrikes on a country good faith? I would say no. Um, the pandemic is ongoing, right? You had Biden in 2020 saying that the sanctions that are impeding the flow of essential goods to Iran must be addressed by the Trump administration. He has yet to do anything himself. He's now a year and a half into his own presidency. Um, we just marked a million American deaths from COVID. So clearly this is still um, a disease that is killing people across the globe, including Iran. Um, yet those sanctions remain in place. So while in talk and in rhetoric, the Biden administration has uh, has engaged in negotiations, at the same time, they keep falling for the sort of traps that the Trump administration set for them. Um, right now, one of the biggest impediments to returning to the deal is the FTO, the Foreign Terrorist Organization, list that the United States has that designation on the IRGC. It's purely symbolic because mm-hmm. the IRGC has its own sanctions separately designated. Um, even if you were to take them off of the FTO list, they would remain a sanctioned entity. This is something, again, that um, officials were critical of when the Trump administration did it. And yet we still haven't reversed it. So, so there are things that Biden could do that he's essentially choosing not to. And and we're getting a lot of like on the the Revolution of Guard uh, Council designation as a terrorist organization by the U.S. Like we're getting a lot of double speak um, from the U.S. too, where they're saying, oh, you know, it doesn't really, really matter. It doesn't really affect too much of our policy. And yet this seems to be like the line in the sand about really returning to the negotiating table. Well, I mean, they've been so we're in so many rounds of negotiations. I don't even know what round we'd be in. I think nine uh, at this point. But because there were a couple of delays, the, the first delay was by the Biden administration under the um, excuse that, you know, well, they're still there. Uh, he's appointing, um, you know, d- different cabinet members. He's still getting his administration in order. And so it took some time. Of course, there was an election in Iran in June mm-hmm. of 2021 as well. So when the incoming Raisi administration took its time, they were criticized for doing precisely what the Biden administration did, right? Which is, well, we we got to get our ducks in order before we before we can engage in anything. Really, the window of opportunity was when the Rouhani administration was still in mm-hmm. power. That was the administration that wanted the deal, um, that negotiated the deal, and that desperately wanted to return to it. Um, but again, you know, these sort of lagging steps on on the Biden admin part uh, put us in, in the current situation we're in. But you had Antony Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken. Um, I think it was maybe about two weeks ago, saying exactly what you said, which is, well, you know, just no, this the designation is essentially meaningless. Um, but here we are. So it's it's sort of a cognitive dissonance to listen to the administration speak. I mean, it may reveal the fact that there are internal dynamics, right, and internal maybe mm-hmm. um, camps that don't necessarily agree on what to do, and ultimately that decision then lays with the president himself. Right. So we can talk about the officials all we want, but ultimately it's the presidents that make these decisions and their cabinet members carry out the decisions that that they want. So ultimately this um, this falls on President Biden's shoulders and you'll hear a lot of talk from the administration trying to blame their predecessor. Right. Well, the Trump administration, this is what we inherited. Mm -hmm. 
but the, the, these are decisions that can be made um, to to overturn exactly what their predecessor did. And again, it's a choice. Yeah, well, we've been calling Biden the uh, press release president ever since that story that he was uh, was going. The U.S. was going to stop supporting offensive actions in Yemen. And uh, it's like, well, you have to wait until the details come out. And he never, there's never any follow through. It's just a nice story for a few days. And uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, there's so many, yeah, absolutely. There's so many examples of that. And of course, you know, offensive, there was a, that's <laughs> yeah. was right. We're just going to yeah. be very technical, except for the fact that we're still, you know, you had hundreds of billions of dollars in, in or uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in sales to arms to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Their offensive war, apparently. So, and you see the same thing uh, with the Iran deal. Um, it is it is very sort of frustrating, obviously, for those who try to support the administration um, as, you know, our best of bad alternatives. Um, and, and to see, you know, there's another one early in early in the administration, they said they were going to do a review of sanctions, you know, especially sanctions and humanitarian impact. That was what I believe the first statement was in January of 2021. And then in October of 2021, so something like nine months or 10 months later, they release a nine page report. Nine, so a page per month, essentially, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't really address anything. Um, basically, what the report says is, well, sanctions are good. It's just that our predecessor didn't do it good enough because he didn't get enough partners um, along to do it. And there was like one paragraph about humanitarian exemptions with no actual steps to address how that's going to happen. So yeah, this has been, uh, unfortunately, the sort of pattern with this administration is to, to talk, but not deliver. Can you speak to, sorry, Dave, just to jump in real quick, but while we, while we got you, um, the achievement of the Iran deal in the first place for about seven years on. So like the first draft of history, what, 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 should people understand of that they got it done in the first place? There's a few things that are really important about the deal. Um, in terms of, again, what's like the central purpose of the deal? The central purpose is uh, to prevent, to basically to have international monitoring on Iran to ensure, because this is Iran is a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty, the NPT. Mm-hmm. So Iran is already a signatory to an international agreement that says they are not pursuing nuclear weapons, but nuclear technology has other applications energy, medicine, et cetera, Mm -hmm. right? So they're allowed to have a civilian nuclear program, but as a signatory to the NPT, they can't have a weaponized program, which they state themselves, they have repeatedly stated that that is not their intended goal, which is why they're a signatory to the NPT. Yet, out of, you know, fear um, that Iran is going to become a nuclear weapons state, um, they were sanctioned by the U.S., they were sanctioned by the United Nations. And so that's where the agreement came from. It said, okay, let's create uh, international oversight that allows us to ensure as an international community that Iran is not weaponizing its program. Now, according to, and I am not a non-proliferation expert, but according to non-proliferation experts, these are the people who spent their entire careers working on uh, the issue of nuclear weapons and non-proliferation. This was the strongest non-proliferation deal ever, right? Mm -hmm. They say it's unprecedented international monitoring of Iran's program. So in terms of what the central goal was, it accomplished it absolutely. Um, By creating those monitors, you could ensure that Iran does not weaponize its program. And 
what it really should have been instead of wasting the last however many years, you know, going back and forth was a model for non-proliferation. So, you know, if we're concerned about Iran being a nuclear state, Iran has Iran and many of the states in the region um, have tried to entertain the idea of making the Middle East a nuclear free zone. Of course, there's only one country in the Middle East that actually has nuclear weapons, and that's Israel. So guess who objects to this? Israel and the United States. Mm -hmm. Because the United States won't even acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. But if if our actual objective as an international community was to you know prevent nuclear weapons, then there's your solution: make it make mm -hmm. the entire region nuclear free. But of course, we don't do that. We, as in the United States, won't accept that because we want to make sure that Israel has a nuclear advantage. Now, there are secondary benefits to the deal. That's not the issue itself. One of the major ones being that you had the United States and Iran. Uh, these adversaries who, at least from their own like rhetoric on the Iranian side and on the U.S. side, had for decades been so aggressive, always this, I, I can tell you as an Iranian-American, you always think like they're going to go to war one day, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's always that fear in your mind. And here was this moment where you saw the fruits of diplomacy. Like that's when diplomacy really works. It's not when... Agreeing with your friends is not diplomacy. That's, that's, that's just agreeing with each other. But getting to an agreement with your adversaries is the entire point of diplomacy. It's to avert war and to you know, reconcile issues through dialogue. And that's precisely what it did. For Iranians themselves, and this is why you saw images of Iranians flooding the streets to, to celebrate the deal, it was also seen as a sort of turning point, right? You had this uh, revolutionary government who came into power in 1979, consistently used anti-US, anti-imperialist you know, uh, imperialist rhetoric. Um, and the fact that that very state still came to the negotiating table with the United States and engaged in diplomacy was a huge deal. It seemed like a turning point um, because it was, you know, I mean, the, one of the first things that Iran did after, uh, after the agreement was a $20 billion deal with Boeing, an American company, to order a new fleet of commercial airplanes. Which are affected, by the way, by sanctions. Mm -hmm. Wildly dangerous to fly in um, because sanctions don't allow them to get parts for their commercial airplanes. Um, the, to my mind, that part of the deal was even more consequential because of its implications. Mm -hmm. Right? You have the non-proliferation part, but you also have the part where you're like, diplomacy works. If we want it to work, it can work. Um, and this idea that, you know, in, in the U.S., we constantly say, you know, Iran can't be trusted. And you still hear it all the time. Iran can't be trusted. They abided by the deal. We didn't. And, and I mean, just to, to hit on the uh, the plane parts thing, I mean, like, you know, I can't remember if this was last year or a couple of years ago, but, you know, there was a there was a crash that happened because, you know, you have defunct equipment. And like, you know, this is just one of the things that like people in the U.S. should have a, a better understanding of this now having sort of lived through, you know, supply chain issues and not being able to get basic kind of things like you know i say this is a very advanced economy it's the wealthiest country in the world and even us like we're very much interconnected internationally for our basic kind of production needs and you see you know this was uh you know caused by you know pandemics and slowing down of of trade because of covid19 but you see even the united states struggles to be able to provide sort of these you know services that we sort of expect as basic in a moment like that imagine what it's like for a country like iran you know which as you were saying earlier like they do a lot of internal production um but you know it, it really severely limits your economy when you're cut off from the rest of the world. 
Uh, I mean, think about the baby formula situation in the yeah. U.S. right now, right? And it's a huge deal, and we're not even talking about it as much as we should because, because again, it has so many implications. Um, the fact that we are as as powerful and as wealthy as we are, we are still dependent on mm-hmm. on trade um, and and you know supply chains and and other countries and all of these things. And to imagine that this country has a baby formula shortage. Just think about being sanctioned by this country, mm-hmm. the most powerful economy in the world, for for years. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, you can. It's hard to imagine the impact that it has. And you know, it's not to say that you know, the on the Iranian side, people just like everywhere else, they're they're resilient. They try to you know uh, continue to live. They have no other choice than to adjust. And, and try to figure out a way to, to get around the situation that exists. But it's, you know, it's a dire situation. It's a very, very challenging situation for a country that um, has, you know, if you have one economic factor working against you, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. If you have multiple economic factors working against you, you're, a lot of people are hurting. Well, I want to get... Um, uh- <laughs> I want to come back to the the current status of, of the nuclear deal, but I don't think we can get there until we sort of introduce the new president um, of, of Iran, Ibrahim Razi. Um, you know, could you give people a sort of just general understanding of, of, of who he is, where he came from, and, you know, how he ended up winning uh, this election? Because he, he won by a sizable um, amount, though I know a lot of people basically f- had feelings that it wasn't um, – the, the selection process, at least, uh, was not completely above water. But I'd be curious to, to hear your sort of framing of, of Rossi and his administration so far. Yeah, well, there's a, reason, a lot of reasons why that election um, wasn't above water, so to speak, and why um, someone like Raisi would would be the one to, to win. Starting with the fact that, um, well, first of all, Raisi is like an ultra, you know, they call him, you can call him hardliner conservative. Essentially, he's you know, if we're looking at like a political spectrum, he's towards the right, right? This is mm-hmm. not, um, whereas you had his predecessor in the Rouhani administration that was, that especially in terms of their their uh, diplomacy, they wanted to engage specifically the United States and the West, which goes, you know, like I said, in, in terms of rhetoric, it goes against sort of what the, a lot of what the official lines of the state are, but that was clearly the direction that they were looking in. Now, this administration is is different. They're they're not seeking the same kind of. I mean, they're seeking to return to the deal um, to relieve the country of sanctions, but they're that's not their sort of like gaze. You, you see more of a diplomatic. Uh, gaze towards the region itself and maybe even towards the east which is quite different than than the rohani administration it's also much more conservative um uh, unfortunately a lot of the people that are under this administration are themselves human rights abusers including raisi himself so you know it's not it's it's in my opinion at least it's mm-hmm. it's not a good administration in terms of carrying out the needs of the Iranian people. But here's a few things to understand about the the political landscape. So Raisi actually ran against Rouhani in the 2017 Mm -hmm. election and lost very badly. I mean, Rouhani won by millions, millions of more votes. Um, Why? Because typically uh, in Iran, it's similar to the U.S. dynamic. If a lot of people turn out to vote, then the more moderate or um, reformist 
sort of camps will win. If there's low voter turnout, then the conservative camps will win, which is very similar to the dynamic in the US. If you get a lot of voter turnout, usually Democrat left liberal will win. If you get low voter turnout, more conservative right Republicans will win. What happened, so this is why Raisi was, you know, blown away in the 2017 election. But in 2021, there are multiple factors that play into why you have very low voter turnout. In fact, record low voter turnout mm-hmm. um, since Iran has held elections of this manner uh, over the last 40 years or so. Uh, first, the fact that you, you met, uh, mentioned the sort of vetting process, right? Iran has, it's a complicated system because while it has like a democratic apparatus, right? It has like a constitution. It has a, and it has an elected government, essentially. It has also an unelected government that, that over sort of powers the elected government. And, and that's what makes it authoritarian and not democratic. Um, but it has the, the apparatus in place and who is president affects the policies of the country and affects the lives of, of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, but within, you know, still within uh, a, a limited sort of frame, if that makes sense. So this vetting process is not a democratic process and they eliminated um not only, I mean, the vast, vast majority of the candidates, but they eliminated some, uh, like Ali Larijani is someone who, this, this family is like a staple of the, uh, of the Islamic Republic. This is certainly not someone who's against the Islamic Republic. And yet even a central figure um, like him was eliminated from, from the election. So there really wasn't viable competition um, because that process eliminated that competition. Now, couple that, couple that like frustration of, you know, they don't even get really to select the candidates that they want to run in terms of the people. Couple that with the utter failure of the Rouhani administration to deliver on its promises because its central promise was economic relief that was based on the JCPOA. It was Mm. based on the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Not only did their situation not get better, under maximum pressure, their situation got much, much worse. Uh, At a pandemic, and you get a lot less people who are you know, willing to go out and vote. And I will be fascinated to see what happens in the US in 2024 uh, when you compare voting maybe in 2020 to 2024. It's just sort of what happens is mm-hmm. all, the, all the, what would galvanize people to vote, no factor existed. Um, and so there were different reasons why people didn't vote, but they just didn't. A, a mm-hmm. much smaller voter turnout brings someone like Raisi to power. Now, what does that mean? Raisi represents a certain segment of Iranian society. I would argue not the majority, right? That's why when you have higher voter turnout, you get a different type of mm-hmm. who wins. Nonetheless, he does represent a certain segment of the society um, that leans in the same like camp and direction. But on one hand, the concern with this administration coming in was you know, would they engage in negotiations with the Biden administration, with the U.S. in order to return to the deal? Every indication is that they they have, mm-hmm. they've continued those negotiations, and that they would go through um, with fulfilling those promises if both sides were to, to return to compliance. But again, whereas under the Rouhani administration, the deal was seen as a sort of stepping stone where diplomacy could grow, where you could, where you could see the the sort of um, what is it, these these adversarial relationships cool and maybe not become allies, but find other ways 
that we could cooperate because mm-hmm. Iran and the U.S. in fact do have reasons to cooperate. Um, they're both again, you know, they both fight against ISIS. They both take issue with the Taliban in Afghanistan. There are areas in which um, cooperation of these two states could not only help U.S. interests but also security interests within the region as a whole. So whereas that was sort of the hope of the deal under that administration, with the Raisi administration, it seems it feels like it's the ceiling. Like if we could just get yeah. that, that's as far as uh, this administration is likely to go. I what mean, it's it, short. Oh, go ahead, David. You know, I just wanted to ask, um, I mean, it's it's because it's a huge setback. I, I was just curious if you could um, let people know, be, uh, because like there's this brief window of time where you still have the Rouhani government in power. Right. I mean, how much of a sense before Raisi is elected um, was there that it was probably going to go in that direction? I mean, like what I'm trying to say is that, like, you know, I, I think we can be frustrated with Biden in any circumstances for not just sort of running to the negotiating table and, you know, re uh, renegotiating the deal or reentering the deal. Um, but I mean, was there some kind of writing on the wall that like, you know, this probably is our like five month window that we have to try to get back on that course before an administration that comes into power, uh, that's going to be far less um, amenable to, uh, you know, to negotiation comes in, into play. 100%. Absolutely. And this is the interesting thing is um, if you, you know, uh, people like myself, right? Mm-hmm. Supporters, advocates of diplomacy, supporters of the deal, um, especially anybody who actually is, uh, you know, familiar with the region and, and has some level of expertise on Iran in particular, or, or really anything, just any analyst who was looking at the situation and, and was for diplomacy, right? If you were an analyst looking at the situation, you were pro-war, we're not reading the situation the same way, mm-hmm. or at least we're not advocating the same things because we want opposite outcomes. But w- Uh, those of us who were advocates had argued under the Trump administration that by doing this, by rescinding on the deal, by putting these maximum pressure sanctions on, the U.S. is basically undermining moderate informist voices in Iran Mm. and that it would help to usher in precisely the administration that comes in, which is Raisi. Um, And the reason for this is not because we're all psychic. It's because it's, it's sort of an, an obvious thing that happens mm-hmm. uh, when an administration promises to do something and they fail to do it, they lose popularity. And in the U.S., the U.S. has had a history of doing this. Um, we've done the same thing to uh, different reformists and different, not even reformists, but just different administrations in Iran who have tried to sort of put out an olive branch. It's, it's interesting for those who are actually privy to that history. It's the U.S. that constantly deflects mm-hmm. it. So, you know, there's this image that, Iran is just this fanatic state that has, mm-hmm. well, there's no pragmatism. They're, they're just anti-US and they hate us. I don't know, because we're free, apparently. I don't know what people say about this, but that's just not the reality of the history. Um, mm-hmm. One important case in point that I would say is Iran's first reformist president elected in the, ni- the late 1990s, Mohammad Khatami, was all about like the dialogue of civilizations. And he came to the US and did interviews and, and talked about his admiration of the American people. Um, be, you know, behind the scenes, Iran was helping the State Department with the Taliban in Afghanistan. So there was, you know, there, this was uh, this was the sort of atmosphere that we were in. Um, after 9-11, Khatami condemns the attacks. Iranians hold vigil for the victims. And then in George Bush's State of the Union address, he names Iran as part of an axis of evil. Iran, mm-hmm. Iraq, and North Korea, none of which had anything to do with 9-11. So... So this has happened before where it's like you have this attempt at detente and then it's totally undermined. And what happens is usually the pendulum flips 
So yes, we were saying this under the Trump administration. I was like, hey, this is mm-hmm. not going to go in the direction that you want. This is actually going to embolden, you know, the sort of like war- the elements that we all agree on, which is, you know, the human rights abusers in the country, the hardliners, the conservatives, the people who want to take people's rights away, who don't want to engage in diplomacy. That's who you're emboldening. That's exactly what happened. Now, once the Biden admin came in, it was the exact same argument. It was like, look, you have this golden window. You have this window of opportunity. Capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And of course, instead of doing that, instead of, and I will never quite understand the logic behind this, um, but maybe I don't have a politician's mind and that's not necessarily about thing. <laughs> but instead of listening to... Biden, instead of the Biden administration listening to supporters, right, the people who actually helped him get elected, um, they focused the early months on, well, we got to talk to Saudi Arabia and Israel and see what they mm-hmm. have to say about the deal. Well, we know what they have to say about the deal. They didn't like it. Well, we have to make sure, you know, Republicans are, are agreeing with the deal. Like, they don't like it. They've told mm-hmm. you this over and over again. So rather than, you know, focusing on the people who actually elected them, um, they focused on the people who were never going to be on their side. They were just never going to, to, you know, switch sides on, on this particular topic. So yeah, all those opportunities um, predictably that were lost led to the situation that we're in, but they were all said ahead of time. And so that's what I mean when I say, these are, these are just choices. It's not like the information is not readily available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That actually answers the question I was going to ask, which is like, the sort of uh, uh, way we put, way I heard it put when I was learning about all this stuff and hearing John Bolton's name for the first time, like fifteen years ago, were the hardliners mutually reinforce each other, and it seems like that's exactly what's happened. That's ex- that's actually exactly what it is. Um, you know, uh, commentators on on you know pro diplomacy side will always use that example. It's like, well, just like we have hawks in the u.s who have done everything they can to thwart diplomacy uh, iran has that too they're called hardliners and so mm-hmm. the people that they tend to criticize they are in in certain ways a mirror image of um and i mean there are other fascinating sort of parallels when you look at uh, the u.s and iran in terms of its political structure because those factions also tend to be the most religiously inclined right the most mm-hmm. religiously extreme at least in their in their views so so yeah there, the the same dynamics exist, and I think sometimes that's lost. Right, Iran is seen as this monolith, um, whereas it's extreme. I mean, it's over eighty million people. It's a diverse country, it has diverse political views, and that is true of its own government. Just like we have, you know, we have members of Congress who basically hate each other. Right, they mm-hmm. they hate each other openly on Twitter. Um, the same thing exists in Iran and in any other country. Like these governments are still just made up of part of that population. And so um, they're not, they're not all the same. They don't see things all the same way. And there's definitely uh, a parallel between the hardline camps in both sides. Yeah. I mean, it's endlessly frustrating, honestly, how a lot of people in the U S sometimes they like flatten like entire countries to, you know, one image when, I don't know. You just need to walk outside your own house to see that, you know, people have very different opinions on lots of different stuff. Um, but I, I wanted to, um, 
I wanted to ask uh, about these these food protests because I've seen these headlines um, starting to pop up um, over the past few days that there have been pretty significant uh, protests in several cities across Iran um, about the increase um, in in food prices, primarily you know flour based uh, flour based foods. Um, could you you know could you talk about that a little bit? And then um, I, I am just curious to to hear your thoughts about how that's being covered. Um, in in the U.S. as well, um, and yeah, I just just go there, and I have something else to add in a little bit. I'm I'm actually glad that you you brought up the food protests as well because I think um, it's important to sort of understand the the different factors that contribute to the current situation. I mean, first and foremost, it is important to say that the use of force against protesters, whether it's Iran, mm-hmm. whether it's Palestine, whether it's the U.S., it does not matter where it is the use of force against protesters is not only wrong, but actually violates, you know, human rights obligations that are understood under international law. People have the right to assemble. People have the right to share their grievances, especially when the grievances are 100% rightful. I mean, you have a population that is suffering from every side, from every side. Um, They're suffering under the corruption and mismanagement of their own government. They are suffering under sanctions, which have made it worse. They are suffering under a pandemic, which has caused global economic disruptions. And they are suffering now, compounded on top of all of those things, because of the food supply chains that have been affected by, uh, by the war in Ukraine. I mean, look at the U.S. right now. People are struggling. They were already struggling, first of all. They've been struggling for a long time. But they're struggling even more because gas prices are like triple what they used mm-hmm. to be. Uh, inflation is out of control. And this is the wealthiest country in the world. This is one of the most affluent populations in the world. And so many people are struggling, partially because what happens, wealth is constant. We're wealthy because there's a few people who have a lot of wealth, but the vast majority do not actually have that wealth. Um, they are not they are not gaining wealth generation after generation. They're just surviving, essentially. And so you see that this is this is a phenomenon that exists uh, across the world, essentially. Iran is not unique in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. There are people who are still doing well um, because they will continue to do so. There are, you know, when we talk about sanctions, one of the parts that people rarely talk about is how sanctions benefit, you know, the black market and, and mm-hmm. the very elements that we're talking about, that the corruption and all of that, guess where a lot of it comes from? Sanctions, right? Because when you're trying to figure out a way to get around something, there's always a lot of money to be made. And that's where a lot of corruption comes from. So sanctions actually exacerbate not only the economic situation, but the corruption of those states. Mm. So they have to deal with all of these things. And now uh, the the announcement, is, pr- protests actually started in Iran's south southwestern province of Khuzestan uh, a week ago. Um, because of an announcement that bread subsidies would be cut. So the state subsidizes a lot of these food products because people would not be able to afford them otherwise. Um, it's the Raisi administration who's choosing to to cut these subsidies. Um, and that caused, that sparked protests there. Those protests have spread um, to other areas of southwestern Iran and then continue to spread to northern and central cities as well, where you see, you know, you see, working class and poor Iranians really, really struggling to survive. And when suddenly, I mean, you have reports that say the price of staples like chicken, eggs, Mm -hmm. dairy products are going up 300%. 
they simply can't afford it. And so that desperation and frustration spills out into the streets. And you can't, I mean, rightfully so, as, as would anybody in, in that kind of a situation. Now, while those protests are sparked by these prices, there are deeper fissures within the society. Uh, we saw this in 2019 when there were protests in Iran. They originated because of an uh, announcement of the Rouhani administration that gas would suddenly become much more expensive. And this, again, same demographics uh, were protesting throughout different areas of the country. Whereas maybe protests in the past in Iran, like if you look back to 2009 in the Green Movement, it's a very different demographic uh, and mm-hmm. sort of geography of where protests are taking place. Um, this is really people who are most impacted by these policies and most impacted by just trying to to sustain their livelihoods. Um, But of course, their frustrations are with their own government, as they would be in any case, right? No, usually when people protest, they protest their own government. They don't protest other governments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that because it's not to, the the Iranian government is certainly the most central figure that is uh, responsible for the situation of its own people. But I think as someone who sits, especially as an Iranian American, right, someone who is of Iranian heritage, but born and raised in the United States, someone who who understands what's happening there, um, it's not that I think that we can necessarily solve those problems, but we could at the very least not exacerbate them. Mm-hmm. We could not foment them. We could not flame them constantly. And I think that's the frustration with, with U.S. policies is, you know, we and and this can be this concept can be applied to our policies domestically as well. We create problems and then try to fix them after we've helped to create those problems, and then usually our policies and our solutions make them worse. I I, yeah, I, I totally agree, and it's it's um, just to wrap things up. I mean, one thing that uh, one of the reasons I mean we've been wanting to get you on the program for a long time now, actually, but um, one of the reasons I reached out is that. There's something about the way that Iran is being covered right now um, in the U.S. that feels, unfortunately, like very retro, right? We're getting like a lot of this like breakout time paranoia um, that, you know, Iran is, you know, just a few weeks away or whatever uh, from, you know, completing a a nuclear weapon. Um, Israel um, has been, you know, I think earlier today they're announcing that they found more centrifuges um, in Iran and we don't have to speak necessarily to the validity of that, but there is that kind of like there was, I feel like in the, you know, the, the mid two thousands and the early 2010s, this kind of like anything goes when it comes to talking about Iran um, that I think only exacerbates, at least for the general American, this kind of propaganda way that most propagandized way that most people think about the country. Um, it, it makes me very, very worried about, you know, the potential of, of conflict, especially in the, the, you know, the situation that the Biden administration has been sl- so slow uh, to really uh, reignite, um, you know, the, this kind of diplomacy that was so helpful um, and, and moving and, you know, meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, you know, just in, in the last, uh, you know, couple of moments, I would just be curious um to hear your thoughts on, you know, where you're feeling about, you know, what comes next and, you know, your just sort of perspective as an Iranian American, um, the way that these things are being talked about in the kind of recent events as well. Well, I can tell you from my perspective, this is how they've always been talked about. So um, I actually uh, authored a report in, er, that we released early January called Other in Iran. And Mm -hmm. the main argument of the report was to say, uh, our policies on Iran are really like nonsense, like, 
they're irrational. If you look at, and it's not just Iran, we have irrational policies, especially in foreign policy. U.S. policy is not looked at as being ideological, but it is, mm -hmm. right? Like just, just the fact that we use phrases like unconditional support for Israel. That doesn't mm -hmm. even make sense. Like if you just think about it for one minute with a grain of logic, to say that something has no condition is a fanatic statement. To say it doesn't matter what you do. No matter what you do, we're yeah. still going to support you. No, you can kill an American journalist. <laughs> you could do that and yeah. nothing would change and we would send you more money. So so it is, it is ideological and the flip side of that is this sort of like anti-Iran attitude, right? It is so easy to say really racist things about Iran and Iranians and no one seems to really bat an eye. Like it's just... Yeah, that's normal. I mean, you had a Senator Reich like um, a month ago or so um, talking in a in the Republicans had a uh, Republican Senate had a press briefing to talk about how much they hate the Iran deal. Um, and in it, he said something I'm paraphrasing, but it was he said something like, I don't speak, you know, I don't speak Persian, but uh, even if I did, I don't think I could find the words good faith because I don't think good faith exists in their Jesus language. Jesus Christ. Huh. Well, I mean, that's like, the, that's, that's a blanket statement. I mean, that's the language of not only Iranians, by the way, but uh, countless other people, millions of people around the world. Um, but this is commonplace. This has been happening for decades. I mean, the depiction of Iran and Iranians uh, in US, whether it's popular culture, right, whether it's um, film and television, whether it's what actual US politicians are saying, or the news, news media. Mm -hmm. It is this constant menace and they're bad and they're evil. And, and for some reason, they're, they're out to get us. What's really interesting about it is they're, and this is an Orientalist trope, is that they are simultaneously a menace that's so powerful that it has reached everywhere in the world and on the verge of collapse, always. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. always extremely weak and extremely strong at the same time. And that's because it's just a matter of what, purpose it serves rhetorically when you're talking about something. You just want to say something. So oh, they're very strong in this context, in this context, they're very weak. We can take them out. Um, but in terms of specifically, you brought up breakout time. And I think this is an, mm -hmm. an important opportunity to, to address the concept of breakout time. Breakout time is a totally arbitrary measure. It's not a real measure of anything, um, but it's used to say, oh, we can we, uh, it was used as like a selling point of the, of the nuclear deal to say that we can prevent, we can, create some kind of measure to tell people we've made the breakout time 12 months. Mm. Breakout time is not a nuclear weapon. I have to clarify this point. Yes. No, when they say point. they're weeks away from a nuclear weapon, that is totally false. Iran is not weeks away from a nuclear weapon. By the way, we've been saying they're like weeks away from a nuclear weapon for like decades. So mm. this is the slowest moving weeks I've ever seen in my life. But <laughs> They are, breakout time is the amount of nuclear material that you would need in order to create a nuclear weapon. You would actually need the weapon itself. You would actually need a delivery system to deliver the weapon. So Iran is one to two years out if it chooses to, and that's the, the second important part. If it chooses to, it's one to two years out from being able to even have a nuclear weapon. So the whole um, fear tactic of talking about it, like in days they're going to have a nuclear weapon is simply technically not true. It is, it's impossible for them to do so. But the second point was they have to make the choice to do so, right? We're, mm -hmm. All of our actions are based on the pure assumption 
that Iran wants a nuclear weapon, period. And yet the country that apparently wants a nuclear weapon is the country that agreed to having unprecedented international monitoring of its nuclear program and abided by it. Now, and by the way, even the Trump administration knows that they abided by it. That's why they certified mm-hmm. the deal multiple times until they withdrew from it in 2018. So it is verifiable fact that IAEA has multiple reports that Iran was abiding by a deal that put unprecedented international monitoring on its program and is a signatory to the NPT. But we have to work under the assumption that no matter what, they've always wanted a weapon. The other thing, and I know that we're out of time, I just wanted to add. Oh no, this is great. My biggest concern is that Iran has consistently shown that, that they are you know, open to, to having monitors on their program and not pursuing a nuclear weapon. But what we've done, our policies, our decisions have potentially could at least change that calculus. Because if you look at the way that the U.S. has carried itself in the world, why is it that we're not engaging in direct combat with, say, Russia? Because you should, Russia is a nuclear armed state. Mm-hmm. More and more, we our actions make it seem like having a nuclear weapon is protection. So it's our own policies that we should be thinking about rather than assuming that it's always someone else that's about to do something. No, I, I think that's a really, really important point. And again, I mean, just to remind folks, too, that, um, you know, as part of the NPT, they were supposed to uh, the nuclear powers were supposed to help countries develop nuclear for civilian purposes. Like That was a part and a huge part of the deal. And, you know, just saying from my perspective, I think nuclear power is very important um, and it's something that, you know, we desperately need to be pursuing across the board um, and to decide that, you know, unilaterally from the U.S. at least that one country can't pursue this kind of basic technology at this point. It's just it's just a slap in the face um, that it's ridiculous that that we have to even be arguing about it but that's the world that that we're living in um and it's in, incredibly frustrating uh, to sit here uh with democratic control of of congress and the presidency um and not see much movement on trying to bring peace and diplomacy here or or on anything else yeah. <laughs> um, well Asal, this was such a, a pleasure we'd love to have you back on the program sometime in the future um yeah, people yeah. should def- People should definitely uh, check out Asal on Twitter. She is a phenomenal follow. Um, and also check out the National Iranian American Council. They do incredible work. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt and David. Yeah, man. Hello, a lot of fun. Asal, as I just said, um, is a killer. It's great to it's great to hear her uh, break these things down. And we'd love to do more with her in the future. Yeah, I know. I, I keep thinking um, she should become a regular guest because, uh, uh, I mean, and and that's the story about the Iran deal, I think, is one that particularly folks, if we're getting a younger audience who, you know, wasn't, you know, as politically uh, plugged in at that point, I think it is like it's such a shameful chapter that mm-hmm. and uh, a lesson in um uh, it's a slow know, moving how, how disaster, war wins. frankly. Yeah, exactly. It's like right how, in front of us right now, this disaster is percolating. And like, let's be clear too, to, to borrow a bomb phrase, um, you know, that like w- what I was getting at with that question towards the end was like, it does get worrying when you start to see these stories popping up about, oh, Ron's go- going for it again. And, and I- I'm sorry to be, you know, I'm just putting my cards on the table. I'm extremely doubtful when I hear this because I've been hearing it my entire life. And I'll tell y'all right now that if they had any real evidence of a serious nuclear weapons program, you would know about it. 
<laughs> um, right. And they, but it, it just is amazing the kind of short memory that you get in a lot of people in the media sphere that allows people to propagate these kinds of very dangerous kind of saber rattling accusations uh, to a country. Again, like I'm a supporter of the of the deal just because, uh, as we were talking about there, open up the door for diplomacy. But like, remember that like the inspections and the investigations that were going on there were frankly humiliating for a country that has no history of pursuing that that kind of nuclear weapon that they were trying to you know stop from being created. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, again, a, it was a great moment of diplomacy. It opened up a lot of doors. So, so for that, we praise and want it to come back. Um, but just remember the context here, especially now when there were, we're turning to this like 2004, 2005 kind of reporting on Iran. It's extremely dangerous and we should have no patience for it. And for fuck's sake, I mean, Joe Biden needs to get off of his ass and start working on this because this is just like, it really boggles the mind, frankly, that they didn't pursue this at the beginning of the administration. Yeah, it is capitulation. It's, it is, it's, it's such, um, it's so disappointing, you know, just from the, the small things you do openings, you do see that was the one thing in Obama's late term that is mm. like, man. And, and Biden just, just just inaction and inaction sleepy everywhere. <laughs> it is really sleepy Joe. It's a low energy sleepy Joe. It's horrible. Well, let's get some energy up because I want to talk before we go to the post game. And remember, you can get access to that patreon.com slash left reckoning and maybe just re up real quick because we always love hearing from y'all. Uh, leave us a voicemail. Oh, that's not it. Um, if there's a message at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. We'd love to hear some questions, especially from new folks too. Um, just know, like, we're, I'm sorry, we haven't set this up yet. It just keeps slipping our mind. Apologies. It just beeps. There is no welcome message, um, but don't get scared. The line works. It just beeps and then leave a message after that. Oh, we'll yeah. get that fixed <laughs> soon. Um, but yeah, leave us a message. Um, but anyways, before we go to the post game, I wanted to take a moment to talk about last night's. Uh, midterm primary results and i know matt you were in the control room a little bit yesterday um i mean what's the what's the kind of flavor i mean how were y'all feeling at at the end of the night last night uh well i mean anger is my feeling but i don't want to sort of extrapolate that to the the, the sort of country in general <laughs> um uh, <laughs> no uh, i thought this was gonna be an uplifting segment man. No, sorry, start with the hate no, that, well, that's the thing is like, so I'm happy Summer Lee won, happy Fetterman won, and we can mm-hmm. get into like the shades Charles of that. Booker, um, Booker too. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple others. Uh, um, uh, Emma uh, texted me. Um, there's one more I, I actually looked up in uh, Oregon, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But um, uh, and all, all that's good. But me personally, I'm just pissed about the APAC and uh, yeah. Democrat majority for Israel funding. <laughs> And so, like that's that's what's really animating me. So, like my energy is up, but uh, it it really is like that. And the way that they're trying to uh, Matt Dust put this, a policy advisor for Bernie Sanders put this well, which is like their public sort of facing reason for existence is, hey, we're showing that you can be a strong progressives, but being on the being pro Israel uh, is the way to be. But they don't mention any of that shit. They they lie about the candidates that are actually running, painting them in like different ways. I mean, um, I mean, sorry, am I getting? I, 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 no, I no, no, no. This is this is important because this is a big part yeah. of, of the storyline. Um, 
I, I wanted to uh, um, I, I, let me just share this right quick because I think just like yeah. th- this is an anger that's you're, you're like you're not unique in this. This is Mike Siegel, um, who's run a, a, a very good progressive campaign here that was unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, but he tweeted this out last night. APAC loudly bragging about distorting U.S. elections to pursue their narrow nationalist aims is very 2022. Hey, we abused campaign finance laws and flooded airwaves with distorted messages, keeping candidates from discussing crisis, crises in healthcare, housing, climate. Aren't we great? I mean, I think that that's, that's very fair, especially because you got to remember that, like, you know, it's a problem enough that you have, you know, organizations like this that are basically trying to make it unelectable to say that, hey, we don't think that an apartheid state should be able to kill American journalists. We don't think that an apartheid state that wants to segregate people based on their religion and race um, should be allowed to do that. Hey, you know, we don't think that illegal settlements should continue, even though that the United Nations has found these to be illegal. Right. That Like if that was like, you know, that's what you know they're they're putting that into the into the climate of the politics yes. and all these fights are going on but also their messaging isn't even just limited to that you know they're running campaigns against Fetterman and other people saying this person's not a real democrat all the while supporting some of the nastiest January 6 you know style republican candidates too right it's two-faced bullshit um and I, I don't think it's wrong to be mad about that at all Matt the not a real Democrat point is perfect. I mean, given the theme of the show, they supported Chantel Brown over Nina Turner because Nina Turner said yeah, a little bit of truth about the difficulty of voting for corporate Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they said Chantel Brown is the real Democrat. That's what they told those voters. And what is Chantel Brown doing? She's saying, hey, Joe Biden, she's one of these Democrats saying Joe Biden should not get into the back of the Iran deal saying we have concerns and we got to do this, that, mm-hmm. this, that, the other. She's the one who's not supporting uh, the Democrats. And like, yeah, so a couple of North Carolina races, North Carolina's first district, $2.8 million between um, the APAC group and, uh, and the other Democrat majority for Israel, DMFI, for Don Davis over Erica Schmidt. Erica voted against the anti-BDS bill in the state. They didn't like that. So there's so free speech for you. Um, they ran an ad tying her to MAGA Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Um, Two point three million for Valerie Foshi over Anita Alam, the first Muslim in North Carolina state office in uh, that's in North Carolina District Four, and then Summer Lee three point one million dollars uh, for Steve Irwin against Summer Lee. And we're going to talk a little bit more about maybe how to think about some of these progressive victories as, as socialists in a second. But like, let's also just remember the cold reality of American politics is that money does matter in these elections, even if you're just taking small do- donor money. It matters for how you're going to run your campaign. And, you know, for example, the Fetterman um, victory was one of the more expensive Senate races in the country. And I believe in also Pennsylvania history, just that, that primary race itself. Right. And Fetterman raised a significant amount of money. Um, but think about how much was spent on that primary where he's now going to go up against a very likely, very well-funded GOP candidate, right? You're bleeding Democratic candidates out beforehand, you know, and like, y'all know how I feel about the Democratic Party. I'm not trying to, you know, cry crocodile tears or anything like that. But just on a political level, it's disastrous for these organizations to be pumping so much money into these campaigns that then needs to be challenged from, you know, the people uh, who are being attacked by uh, DMFI 
um, and, and APAC, right? Like you're basically are weakening your Democratic Party candidates with this money. Um, because they, yeah, because the, the race just becomes so expensive that when they go into the general, um, they've depleted a, a large amount of the sums that they were able to raise in the, in the primary. And then, you know, people are less likely to donate as the cycle goes on, et cetera, because I gave them hundred dollars or whatever. Um, you know, it's a huge waste of money. And at the end of the day, it only supports war, apartheid and w- w- paid, uh, consultants who are too fucking well paid. Yeah. But maybe, I mean, maybe let's talk about some of the, the positive results. Let's start in yep. Kentucky. Uh, where Charles Booker uh, is going to go up against Rand Paul. Uh, maybe Charles should get in contact with Rand Paul's neighbor for the best way to land the best knockout blow. But um, <laughs> um, I think that's a very exciting campaign. I always like the the hood to the holler uh, kind of framing. Um, oh, I mean, how could we be <laughs> against that? <laughs> You know, and Booker's not perfect, and I'm just going to say this up front because I want to talk about it at the end. I want to lay these people out first and talk about their victories. Um, you know, we do have to be careful about our relations with with them, and um, but also I think that you have to understand that there is a benefit to seeing you know progressive victories in states like Kentucky and Pennsylvania. You know, but um, you know, Booker, somebody's running on Medicare for all. Uh, he's somebody who's running on reclaiming the New Deal legacy. I have this quote here from him. Let me just read this right quick. This is from his interview with the Real News Network. Um, we are trying to tell a story with uh, the Kentucky New Deal, trying to help folks to remember the promise and the opportunity that was the New Deal, which created these long-term investments in regular folks. There's also this understanding that in a lot of ways, the promise of a new deal, which was really about ending poverty, has been undermined for years by politicians like Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, who are really looking to screw us every chance they get and to sell us out to the highest bidder. That's a message that I believe is a winning message. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also a message that has a positive program associated with it because we do need um, this kind of massive state investment, New Deal style policies to get us out of the current uh, disaster situation that we've been in. If it's climate, if it's poverty, if it's education, um, like these are the kinds of uh, visions that we need to be building on. And I think that having somebody, you know, if you're in Kentucky, having somebody like Booker to vote for against somebody as despicable as Rand Paul, that's a very positive thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who was it against McConnell? Amy McGrath. Amy McGrath, which was a disaster. I mean, just like, and what that does is like, just like the, the political sort of atmosphere is just like null. Like there's nothing to, that carries forward. Yeah. Like even if he doesn't beat Rand here, which I'd be amazing mm-hmm. if he beat, beat Rand. Be so at good. least you're, at least you're building something with, like toward, like you're saying, a public, like a program toward actual things <laughs> and not I mean, some like, here's a vet who can like stand like, oh, I'm excited to see Booker versus Rand just because, you know, Rand is a very unique kind of Republican, at least in the way he presents himself. If you look at his like he always oh, everyone's always like Rand's a libertarian, really look at his voting record. And it, it's not as different as you might expect from your typical mainstream, uh, you know, GOP um you know, a Senate Senator, um, you know, every once in a while he'll make a fuss about, uh, you know, about military investment, but it's always quite limp. Um, I'll be interested to see how Booker comes up against Rand just because, you know, when Rand makes these kind of arguments about increasing taxes and coming after a certain kind of lifestyle, I think that Booker putting forward a very strong kind of new deal oriented, um, politics versus that I think could be quite compelling. 
um, just because it's different from the kind of limp democratic thing where they're like, well, actually I cut taxes when I was in the Kentucky state house or whatever the fuck they say. Right. Like, I think that that will be something that will be very beneficial for Booker. And I think even if it's not successful in the long uh, game, I think, you know, it's very helpful in just like moving that conversation out of that really tired tax bracket argument that you basically see in most state races across the country. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Um, uh, yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's, um, let's go over to Pennsylvania just for a second. Summer Lee, um, looks like, you know, she pulled away with it. That's a huge victory. I'm very happy to see that. I I think Summer Lee will be a a, a great addition uh, to the kind of general progressive movement and Fetterman, uh, everyone's favorite big boy. Um, (laughs) You know, one out and he didn't just win by a little bit. He won overwhelmingly. Every yes. county in Pennsylvania went for Fetterman. That's despite millions of dollars being pushed against them by TMFI. Um, and all and of the Connor kind of, Lamb. Connor, Connor Lamb, Lamb that- who's the greatest swamp goal you could imagine. Yeah, a little worm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, truly, I mean, this is somebody who is like an anti union consultant kind of character uh, this is somebody who is through and through was very proud to say i'm against progressive policies i'm against i'm against democratic yeah. socialism and made the race about that and mm-hmm. i mean let, let in me a just, way that let, like makes fetterman i thought like look like a little bit uh, better than he actually is i, I mean I, I, that's i'm exactly excited about him but say. like but I'm like, oh my God, he's a socialist. And like, okay, here we go. Let's let's do it. And it's like, you know, well, I mean, he's a good Democrat. I think Fetterman Fetterman is like a notch below Fetterman is a progressive in the sense of like progressives are very different from socialists. And like, you know, we right. have a lot of common goals, at least in the short term, long term, uh, very different ones. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Matt, you're right. Like the, the point is like, what lessons can we draw from the Pennsylvania race, right? If they made this race about kind of turning against the Bernie Sanders style um, you know, democratic socialism or left populism or whatever you want to call it. And Fetterman is the recipient of the, of the yes vote there. That's good for our kind of politics. Fetterman supports Medicare for all. Um, you know, he's somebody who supports unions, uh, drug legalization. Um, you know, people, I will say too, like one thing that's good about Fetterman, he's uh, very strong on nuclear, which I think is something that is, will add a lot of good energy. Um, not no pun intended. Into the um, you know, into the public discord. People get mad at him because he said some things about fracking and, and natural gas, and like I think there's a lot of valid criticisms there um, to make. But also, like I'm sorry, I I think we're gonna do an episode on this soon. Not to to cop out here. I think we're yeah. doing an episode on nuclear power and why that's very important for our our goals in the future. I think people really need to get educated on that, and I'll I'll own it. Like. Um, I remember doing segments on TMBS very much vehemently against nuclear, but the more I've educated myself and talked to people in, in like the, the green movement and particularly left socialists, green socialists, I've been very convinced on that. But put that aside for now, I think that Fetterman makes the point that it's like, you know, you have to create power sources and nuclear is a great option uh, there that are able to provide for us in the future. And you can't just go uh, to systems that are very likely to fail. Right. I don't know. Call me out on that, um, but I, I think that that's actually quite responsible. Well, I think we look, can question him on on some of the things he said on natural gas. I don't think that we need to be pursuing fracking. Um, but the quotations that I've read of him, 
he's saying like, you can't say that you're going to pull out nuclear and then say that you want to get rid of natural gas and, and fracking because it just doesn't work, especially in the short term. But anyways, yeah, I, I yeah. think well, that Fetterman on that has been fairly solid. I guess I would like more Green New Deal kind of politics from him. Um, but again, fuck yeah versus any kind of Republican candidate and fuck yeah versus any kind of Connor Lamb character. Uh, do you know how the Moneyball system works? That movie with Jonah Hill and I think Jonah Hill's in it. But, bit, yeah. but so basically the idea is wins above replacement. War. It's a big uh, mm-hmm. baseball stat. And the thing is, is like you just want to do better than what the like – the, the the like general what you could expect at that position right mm-hmm. and so like fetterman might not i mean i think i agree with you like um we need to be a lot more on that maybe he won't be better on fracking issues on all these other issues it's way better than what you got right mm-hmm. and i think like people just need to think about it that way uh uh and uh and and yeah but also just to be clear, I, I don't want to come off as like a huge Fetterman uh, stand necessarily, but like, right. Yeah. Just to be clear on, on, on the nuclear, uh, on the energy point, you know, this is somebody who's coming from this, from a kind of just tra- transition perspective where he's saying like, we have a lot of jobs in these industries and we both need to be thinking about what the outcome is going to be for our power production and two, what it's going to mean for the people who work in those industries. This is somebody who's refused to take, for example, fossil fuel industry money. So a lot of the concerns that he has there, I think, are the kind of political fights that we need to have in any kind of transition, right? Where we're saying to the people who work in those industries, here's the plan to get you all from where you're at to where we want to be in the future. We're not going to just, you know, cut y'all out and leave y'all unemployed, right? Which I think is a big problem with a lot of, you know, uh, um, green movements, right? Is they just say, fuck all the workers in, in those industries, right? Pennsylvania produces a lot of um, energy sources, right? And like you need to take seriously how we're going to take care of people who work in those systems now going in the future. That's the just transition, right? So anyways, I think that where his concerns are coming from being from like a worker and a working class kind of question is a positive sign. But you had a graph. Did you want to show that? Yeah. You're muted. Sorry, Matt. Yeah, so this is uh, NBC News asked uh, Democratic voters if they wanted larger scale policies or small scale policies. I'll, I'll read it full here. Uh, do you, in thinking of about the Democratic candidates in your state and how they approach issues like healthcare, climate change, college affordability, and economic opportunity, which of the following comes closer to describing the candidate you prefer? Uh, one, uh, someone who proposes larger scale policies that cost more and might be harder to pass into law, but could bring major change on the issues. Uh, that, uh, I mean, if you can look here, uh, the most recent is that has 63% mm-hmm. versus 33% of, uh, someone who proposes smaller scale policies that cost less and might be easier to pass into law, but will bring less change on these issues. So mm-hmm. two to one. Uh, which way Democrats are out on these issues. And that's why Connor Lamb got the big fat L because I mean, he, he, he couldn't be more wrong. Uh, totally. And like, that's, that's the real positive note um, from, from these victories. I mean, you know, uh, we're very like, I think that, you know, we, we, we interview socialists on this program. We don't really do a lot of political interviews with progressives because we think that there's a, there's a difference in our politics and our policies here. And I don't think people should just sort of blindly uh, be lining up behind whatever like hot progressive is, you know, running at, at a time. Um, but I, I can't sit here 
and deal with some of the people who aren't seeing the positives that we saw last night, right? Because as we said earlier, the right wing of the Democratic Party tried to make this election about Bernie Sanders, Green New Deal, Democratic Socialist policies. And people said, we want those. We can argue yeah. about the, the validity of those candidates. And I think that there's certainly serious you know, questions, particularly on Israel, right? Which is amazing, by the way, that like the MFI is pumping all this money against Fetterman, who said he's going to lean in to that stuff. Completely unacceptable answer, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to what this means for the electorate, what this means for the people who are voting, it means that people are saying, we support this kind of bold progressive change. We support these pro-worker policies. We support this over status quo Democratic Party policies. That's a good thing. And you should be able to recognize um, that if we want to have a fruitful future for our kind of politics, that seeing these signals from the electorate is a very, very heartening uh, example, as were the two Bernie Sanders campaigns. It was everybody who was voting for Bernie Sanders a dyed-in-the-wool socialist ready to go for all this shit? No. But it showed um, that there is a hell of a lot of room to build here and that we should be pursuing it. And from Kentucky to Pennsylvania, we saw the success of the, that, that kind of messaging and we saw the preferences. And you should be able to celebrate that and be excited about that. I don't think you should be blind um, in, in thinking that we're seeing, you know, this necessarily second, you know, this kind of clandestine socialist movement coming to power. I think that, for example, Fetterman gets into Senate, we'll be doing segments on this program about him doing bad votes on certain bad things. Votes. I also think that when we have people who are lining up for Medicare for all, when we have people who are lining up for a higher minimum wage, when we're lining up for people who are against war, when we're lining up for legalization of marijuana, having people who are going to vote yes on that is a good thing. And like, you should just like, Sometimes I think so many people, for example, might have got their Marxist education from like kind of online pugnacious stuff and not from reading Marx. Like Marx was like when Marx was analyzing politics of countries, he was oftentimes saying like, oh, wow, there's this kind of liberal contingent in this country. That's positive, right? He wasn't saying that the, the, the policies weren't filled with contradictions. It's fucking Karl Marx, for God's sakes, right? Yeah. But he recognized that you can see things moving in a certain direction, and then that's positive. And I would think – I would just hope that people on our side of things who sort of say that they look at these things with the Marxist analysis can see these kind of exciting things. It's, it's not done. It's not settled. It's not over. But this is a positive kind of reading that we're getting right now that should encourage you to continue the work, especially at a time when a lot of people, I feel like – have gotten very pessimistic about the potential of, of American politics in the near future, right? These are positive developments. You should be able to celebrate them. Hell, um, you know, you should be happy and excited. I mean, these, this is good damn news. Yeah. And I, I don't think I, the, the poll we just showed where people want more from the government uh, to be active in making their lives better is I think hand in hand with what we're seeing with people deciding, Hey, I want to unionize. Like what you're seeing is people mm -hmm. actually putting things together in a way that like has been the, I mean, tr entire media apparatuses have been designed to prevent. And uh, it's like fostering both of these things. I think it's really important. And I, and that's the thing is, you know, we got to make sure that Fetterman doesn't, for instance, get in and do something that will upset that. But Fetterman right now is getting hit over his support for the pro act. And yeah. we have to have Fetterman's ba back over that. Right. Um, yeah. And, and my advice on all this too, like, <laughs> I just get very tired of, of some of the kind of simplistic 
worldviews we get some from some members of the the left we'll give them mm -hmm. that today right yeah. um you're like well this candidate's not right and there's issues with him um that i think is a very very stale kind of analysis because i'll say this again and i say the same thing about aoc when aoc sort of steps out of line if you're frustrated with certain people right now who are holding up the banner of the movement not necessarily being rooted in the movement the solution is to get to work within the movement to build up our power so that they're lining up behind us, right? That is the solution, not just sort of sitting on, on the sidelines and saying, yeah. well, this isn't like, uh, you know, a, a perfect thing initially. So we're not going to recognize some positive lessons that come out of this kind of stuff. Don't get stupid and starry eyed and start thinking that, you know what, finally, the Democratic Party is going to reform itself and start, you know, being, a, you know, a real lefty organization. Don't be stupid like that. But also don't be stupid and not being able to see that when positive changes are happening, when we're getting good results from the work that has been being done on making ideas like Medicare for all popular ideas, like a higher minimum wage, um, more popular ideas, like a green new deal, more popular when we're seeing those results come, even if they're not necessarily lining up in our groups, like control, um, we should see those as, as a positive thing. And the question that needs to be, how can we get control of those things rather than just sort of sitting on the outside? Yeah, I mean, this is actually, it seems fundamental to maybe Marxism, like uh, 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 people before ideas, um, mm -hmm. don't be so idealistic, right? Like your ideas are only so important as the coalition you have behind it. Totally. You and whose army? Totally. Totally. Well, y'all, um, I appreciate everybody hanging out with us this evening. We got a hell of a lot more. We got Musk. We got Rogan. We got uh, Joe Rogan's Reddit turning on him. It's, Very exciting stuff. It's really beautiful stuff. And uh, as always, we'll be taking your questions and calls from the Discord. Get access at patreon.com slash leftreckoning. I'll put that number up one more time, 1940-289-7234. Again, we don't have a welcome message. Matt and I this week will record a very, very sweet and loving uh, welcome <laughs> message for all of y'all. Um, but right now, there's just a beep uh, and then just start talking. And uh, we'll play that in the post game and see all y'all in just a couple minutes. All right, see you folks. Oh, you got it.